See, that's another episode we should do in a year or so. It's like undone curved moments that yeah. we collectively come up with. Moments that you wanted to act like an asshole and were and and social graces and norms and what, prohibited you from doing. And what does it all say about neoliberalism? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hochley. It's Tuesday, the 12th of October, but you're hearing this at the beginning of November, I think. Uh, I'm joined, as usual, by George Hoare. Hi, George. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? Good, good. That was your cue to come in right there. Um, but anyway, that's that's fine. I, na- I nailed uh, it. You nailed it. Absolutely uh, nailed it. And uh, well, Phil Cunliffe is uh, feeling a bit under the weather, so he's away. But in his place, we have an upgrade in the form of uh, satirical architect or uh, architectural satirist, Carl Sharrow, also known as Carl Remarks on Twitter. Hi, Carl. Hi, Alex. Hi, George. Great to be with you again. Yeah, very good. Very good. It's been, we were actually trying to remember when the last time you were on. And actually, I think it was May 2018 when we were talking about the World Cup. So um, it's uh, been a long time and, and you should have been on sooner than this, but uh, excited to have you on today to talk about uh, your essay, The Retreat from Universalism in the Middle East and the World, which is a report for the Century Foundation, which came out in 2019. Um, but Carl uh, pointed it my way only recently, and I realized, well, we have to get him on to talk about it because uh, obviously regular listeners on the podcast will know that uh, we have an ongoing concern on the podcast with defending secular universalism. And that's whether it's challenging identity politics in the West and their narcissistic particularism or challenging sectarianism and religious and ethnic nationalism elsewhere in the world. And of course, it's uh, 2021. So it's been a decade since the Arab Spring and that region in particular is still living in the shadow of that failure. Um, so this is all useful background uh, before I bring Carl in. Just one quick thing uh, before that, which is I wanted to highlight two relatively recent episodes uh, which we've had, which act as, I think, useful companion pieces for what's about to come. So we have episode 198, uh, Universal India with Achen Van Eyck, which covers these debates about secularism and universalism, specifically in the Indian context, but which have much wider uh, importance and relevance. Uh, and of course, uh, episode 141, O Lebanon, What Now with Rima Majed, someone who actually Carl put us in touch with, who is an excellent guest, uh, talking about the crisis in Lebanon, talking about the confessional system there. And uh, Carl today, I guess, is going to talk to us about uh, the Lebanonization of the world. I don't know if that's the term that he'd want to use. Um, <laughs> maybe I'm putting words into his mouth. But anyway, that, that maybe just gives you gives you a, a sense of what it's about. Are, are you doing a franchise, Alex? That's right. Off your, your yeah. article and your book here. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk maybe towards the end about whether it's Brazilianization or Lebanonization, or if you have other suggestions. You know, Japan. I think someone someone suggested Japanization. We talked once about that on the podcast. So um, what about become... what about Angloization? Eng- no, English. That, that's, our, that's that's what's happened. I mean, that, that already was a phase in world history, and and we're leaving that behind. George, it's called colonialism. We'll talk about it one day. (laughs) Okay. Well, mate. Okay. Well, uh, at least we had we had our time time in the sun. Made the most of it. 
So um, first of all, I guess, Carl, what was the context of you deciding to write this? Um, it obviously starts off kind of with the talking about the effect of Islamic State on the region, the Middle East and on communal relations. It's kind of wider impact. Uh, so I guess the obvious question, what prompted you to write it? Uh, so uh, the the kind of the 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 practical context was that the Century Foundation and a couple of my friends who were there at the time um, came up with this idea for a project that had about 20, 25 different participants um, to address the notion of uh, religion, the role of religion in politics in the Middle East and looking at alternatives for that. And it was quite a diverse group of people writing from different angles. And it was quite an interesting format because we took a long time in terms of having these discussions, trying to throw out uh, themes across the board and for everyone to go and find their own angle to uh, jump into it. Now, for people who had been reading my stuff um, prior to that, the 10 years before, the 10 people who have been reading my stuff would know that that kind of uh obsession with the oh, similarity carl, carl you have at least 11 twitter followers it's it's certainly more than 10. <laughs> okay fair point uh, and my serious stuff so they'll know that um i've been kind of harping on about um this 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 kind of um i don't want to kind of make a lot out of it but this kind of superficial resemblance uh, between multicultural arrangements in the West, particularly in uh, Britain and the Lebanese system. And we'll come on to, you know, what those similarities are. And, and I thought it was an opportunity to sort of um, uh, draw on those topics, but try to answer a very topical question at that moment, because something big had really happened. Right. So the rise and then subsequent defeat of ISIS, which was quite a major catastrophic thing. And it's almost like past afterwards, as if it was, uh, you know, a summer's cloud and the, the, there wasn't any willingness to really uh, um, grapple with it, try to understand what made that happen. How can you go very quickly uh, within what was termed the Arab Spring um, from these kind of demands for freedom and equality and getting rid of dictators to something very ugly and something quite vicious like uh, Islamic uh, State and, and kind of trying to understand really what happened and what that represents for um, the future of post identity-based movements within the region. So there are all these kind yeah. of questions in the background and we can come back and break them down to make it more tangible. And I sort of wanted to, ad wanted to address that head on and I wanted to address it in a, in a kind of quite meta way, you know, in a, in a kind of attempting to, to grapple with it on a, on a quite a, a kind of comprehensive level rather than uh, take a very niche approach, and um, yeah, and it and it was... definitely it definitely does that. But I think it, it's interesting. I mean, just to jump in, the way in which I think people have tried to forget about Islamic State, I think is kind of remarkable because it's it was like, well, this thing came up, it was messy and extremely ugly, and you know now it's gone, and now we can forget about that and kind of get on with uh, get on with the rest of our lives. But you know, it, it's certainly in the in the region, kind of like as if th that's now been completely bookended and won't have any lasting effects. And I think you you do highlight the way that uh, that it's something that can't just be, you know, you can't just wash your hands of it, or you can't just forget that that it actually happened. Absolutely, absolutely. And and there were, you know, it's, it's kind of if you look, I mean, obviously, we shouldn't do spurious comparisons, and it wasn't World War Two or whatever. But 
you have a, 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 a serious attempt at an organized uh, genocide, at least uh, uh, against one group, the Ezidis, and then quite a, you know, a barbaric acts of violence against other groups and, 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 and quite a kind of, uh, you know, um, catastrophic um, event or sequence of events. And it's sort of everybody just wants to kind of quickly over, uh, you know, forget about that and, and move on. And nowadays, if you actually hear about it, you hear about it through the plight of the, the people who went to join ISIS from Germany or Denmark or whatever, like they've become the victims somehow in this equation or Shemaima Begum or whatever. And uh, there's very little discussion of the, the, the rest of the kind of the story. So I wanted to be, you know, at the heart of that in saying, no, this is not something that can be dismissed quite easily. We can't have very easy answers as well for it. We have to actually start addressing some serious questions. And this thing wasn't just born out of nothing. And we really need to understand what brought us here. And also, you know, what's the path for the future that we can start to explore a different form of politics that ultimately will prevent this thing from happening again. So that was kind of the premise. I know it was kind of a really over ambitious and I absolutely failed in it, but uh, it was worth a shot, I guess. So that, that was the context. Well, I mean, only, only, if, only if the ambition was to was to bring back secularism to the Middle East single-handedly. <laughs> no, I think you didn't quite manage that, but the essay is fantastic and I encourage people to read it. Yeah, I mean, I, so I, I should ask a question that, that Phil, if he wasn't ill Phil um, today, would would ask, which is a, a, about ISIS specifically. I mean, is, is there a way that ISIS was actually quite a universalistic project? It was quite cosmopolitan, um, looking to transcend some, some kind of um, um, archaic national state boundaries and actually appeal to a to a, a cosmopolitan idea in the sense of having a community that's that's supranational um you could call it a cosmopolitan dystopian project um but is this the sort of universalism that you're that you're talking about or that you're particularly interested in in this in this essay i, I mean i should probably clarify to, to listeners that i mean I, I i think if you're reading this essay of carl's as a defense of, of isis then probably there's there's a, a bit of a problem with your comprehension skills but yeah um what what, what do you think no, I think um, that's a that's a great observation, and um, it actually draws upon um, certain themes within Islam that lay claim to a certain form of universality, right? Um, so you get uh, you know some pronouncements about equality between the races that they're all equal in front of the God or the different tribes or things like that. And that's kind of quite important, but also I think it was quite important historically within Islam in allowing it um, um, to expand quite quickly. I mean, it's something that I cover in another essay, ironically, about architecture, which is uh, called In Defense of Islamic Architecture, whereas there's a kind of an alternative form of universalism embodied within Islam. And it's a, it's a form of universalism that only allowed to operate within um, the kind of the confines of what Islam deems acceptable. And within that, some other groups are tolerated. We're talking about, you know, the earlier periods of uh, Islamic civilization and uh, there's certain rules for integrating them and then society. So that does have universalistic aspirations. Um, ISIS is obviously not necessarily representative, although it's a little bit of a cliche. It's not 
a representative of Islam, nothing could be its representative of certain strands that are very contemporary that emerge out of uh, Islamic societies. And therefore it embodies that notion which you get people from all over the world speaking different languages we've all heard the stories where some of them didn't even have never read the quran they couldn't speak arabic but they were kind of drawn by something right and and obviously that's quite distinct from a universalism that's um, much more encompassing um that um essentially what we want from it people like me what they want out of it is a different form of politics that is more interested in class is more interested in class interest is more uh, interested in a secular form of politics so that obviously uh is not tolerated uh under the vision but it does have that kind of in a in a kind of inver inversion of uh, you know yeah. the the way is organized is is kind of became a, a claimant to uh, a form of universalization. Now there's this is not exactly our topic, but I think what ultimately defeated it um, partially from within is the other layer on top of it, which was this kind of um, 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 I was going to say millennial, millenarian. <laughs> you can't blame the millennials. For you can't blame the millennials for everything. Yeah, and 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 that kind of was self-exhausting, right? Like even after it acquires territory and things like that, they, it, it it's incapable uh, uh, intellectually and conceptually from kind of holding onto that territory or forming a project of power that mm. will allow it to sustain itself, right? So it's a self-consuming millenarian form of that universalism is driven by a mm. cultish end of days project that's going to consume itself which in my opinion then it kind of undermines that whole point of the universalism because it's non-durable yeah. and and even at the level of trying to make an appeal to uh within islamic um, you know, society or whatever one you call it to be the kind of the, the, the supreme art of arbiter of truth of that, it ultimately failed even in that, right? Yeah, so I think that's the... Yeah, and I think, I mean, the primary target of your essay is sectarianism. And I think you, you suggest in the thing that the effect of um, ISIS, despite its sort of somewhat of its universalist slant, is that it ultimately ends up being a kind of Sunni... Uh, Sunni sectarianism, or perhaps even more narrow than that, and not only that, but then provokes other forms of sectarianism in response to it and in defense uh, against it. So you talk about kind of exactly. defense brigades being created by whatever the Yazidis to defend themselves against uh, Islamic State. So whatever it's, it's universalistic pretensions, it ends up being quite sectarianism. Is that right? Yeah, no, no, of course. So what we're saying about the universalism is defined not even within the confines of Islam itself, but even from a very narrow Sunni supremacist position, right? Yeah, that is the message. I mean, what makes it distinct from other, let's say, supremacist movements that are more race based or things like that is obviously they wouldn't be open to other um, ethnicities or creeds or races or, or things like that. I think where it kind of uh, it was kind of a little bit more um, complex and problematic in this sense is behind this Sunni supremacist view there's there's a there's a kind of a universalism in a very very narrow sense yeah and in, I it's, guess it's, a, it's in a, its a kind of, of global appeal yeah I guess it's sort of cosmopolitanist or globalist but not mm. necessarily it's certainly not universalist and actually kind of I guess it what's distinct about it is that it's not 
localist in any way. It's not rooted in any kind of sovereign notion of um, of, of place and uh, you know of a certain community that it can be open to everyone, but still extremely sectarian. Um, with that in mind, I'm going to just sort of make a bridge to Lebanon, which I guess, in light of uh, the experience of Islamic State, some have held up as a potential model for the Middle East. And anybody who knows anything about Lebanon, I think, would probably be, well, maybe not everyone, but uh, but many people might be taken aback by that idea. And certainly listeners of, uh, of this podcast, of that episode, which I mentioned at the top on Lebanon, uh, would certainly be taken aback with the idea that Lebanon could some way present a model for um, peaceful coexistence. So how, how is it, who's making these arguments and what sort of arguments are they making for Lebanon somehow being a model for the, for the Middle East? Well, this is, I mean, this is precisely the nub of what I was trying to kind of wrestle with, right, in this essay, but trying to draw out the historic roots of um, um, this kind of what we term sectarianism and what then starts to resemble um, a multicultural model in the West and often gets celebrated in Lebanon as a model of coexistence, right? That superficially, at least, you can get all these different sects, you get some different ethnicities as well, and they can all, for certain periods, coexist and be happy. And, you know, it could be a, a kind of a functioning, thriving society. And then occasionally it goes into crisis. All right. So that what gets celebrated by, um, in my mind, this this kind of um, um, point of view that wants to celebrate differences and not only kind of celebrate them, but use them as a formalized form of organizing politics and society, right? By which I mean, you don't happen to be of a different religion or sect and you get accepted in that society. Every single way in which that society is organized from the number of MPs and their allocation across the sets to the number of um, um, you know, government employees to all sorts of kind of quotas and the way contestation over politics happens, passes through this prism of this organized form of communitarianism all right yeah and 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 that's kind of to summarize a very complex argument and i think listeners can go back to the episode with rima for a much more kind of um a lengthy explanation of that because that's not what we're trying to do here but we're just saying we're talking about a set of formalized relationships that are given constitutional weight within the way you organize society and then the observation for me that I think uh, critical to uh, this discussion is there's something at least superficially similar that's happening in the West, happening in places like Britain and Canada and America, where you start to shift from this kind of the secular subject, the, the kind of the notions of universalisms around which countries like France and um, uh, the United States allegedly were built to kind of a more fragmented system that kind of wants to make more of these differences and institutionalize the way they are, um, their relationship to the state and to um, uh, to power is organized. Okay, so that was the observation. Now, when people start to, sorry, George, go ahead. I no, 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 I, 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 I interrupted you in your, in your flow there. I do have a question, but I'll, I'll let you wrap up yeah. this point before. <laughs> yeah, um, so uh, it, it's, it's, I, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of quite complex, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make it compressed. Now, the people that celebrate that particular Lebanese model, where I think the issue is, and we can elaborate on it, 
is um, they think it's kind of a the the by celebrating those differences and instituting these um, uh, kind of uh, different allocations for different groups and orchestrating their relationship with each other that they are presenting an alternative to the supremacist sectarian ISIS model. Right, they are not presenting a truly universal model that's based on citizenship, based on equality under the law. They're saying that's the best we can do. That's the right way to counteract yeah. that. Right, and then my problem with this is that those draw their impulses, what your politics should be, from very simple, uh, similar places. They are about politics being about your identity, who you are by birth how you organize as a group to protect your interest. Of course, they do it in completely different ways. And um, um, but nevertheless, the experience of Lebanon shows that that model is prone to uh, chronic crises and kind of constituting a political entity around those fragmentary kind of impulses will invariably lead to periodic explosions. Yeah. That's that's the kind of the nub of it. Yeah, I, I think. Go ahead, I think it is, yeah, I think I think so. When when you sort of say that the that Lebanon in the, in this case or in this sense represents like it, it's a, it's a precursor to of multicultural politics in the West. Um, Absolutely. And so I guess yeah. So one of the things that you point to in in the in the um, in the essay is that you arrived in in Britain in two thousand and two, and there was a lot of talk at this point about Britain being a community of communities. Um, so as much as I would, in fact, I would kind of like to hear your your observations on those crazy Brits that you that you encountered. Um, but like, what? Yeah, just to draw that out a little bit more. What, how 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 did that similarity kind of strike you? How did you start to realize that the multicultural politics in the West around this time were just a kind of an echo of the of the Lebanese model? Yeah, and, and I think that was like a kind of um, a very, for me, a very kind of um, alarming observation, but a very interesting observation, because when you're in Lebanon and when we organize politically, particularly in left wing circles, there's still this uh, ideal of um, a kind of a secular universalist belonging to something that, you know, there are all kinds of movement from uh, civil marriage isn't allowed. And then, you know, there were movement to kind of try to obtain that, then removing, being able to remove your religion from and sect from your identity card, because the aspiration was kind of, if you, if you overcome these uh, sectarian issues, then we're all kind of, you know, somehow magically attain a different uh, class-based politics yeah and and then you always think that going to the west and countries like britain and france then it's going to be this wild celebration of in the one lace day but in britain you know it's going to be much more universalist and there's a very strong left-wing tradition as well as a very strong right-wing tradition but it will be driven by interest and class interest and there's these competing visions and then I come here and then you see how the institutionalization of the same kind of discourse of, uh, you know, how it's almost like the state becomes an arbiter between different uh, identity groups. All right. To the extent and it, it, Blair was prime minister at the time and there was talk always of, you know, how do we talk to community leaders? And if there's one particular issue, then that's not dealt through the formal institutions or EPs or like that. The PM or someone might go and talk to a community leader and things like that. 
and it was superficially then very similar to how we go around solving issues in Lebanon. And then the more I delved into it, and Kenan Malik's work in particular, um, in, in kind of examining how the municipal version of these kind of multicultural politics uh, uh, kind of leads to the, the, the perpetuation or the production of forms of uh, politics that are, uh, you know, as he described it, is like multiculturalism becomes, you know, the, the, the problem and the solution at the same time. So you have diverse societies. The only way to solve it is by addressing those diversities separately, so to speak, rather than yeah. trying to to seek any form of universal form of addressing that. So that was the observation. And that's what I tried to kind of draw on this and say, is there something much more global, uh, uh, globally operating a cultural transformation that's feeding all these different uh, manifestations in the Middle East and the West? And are there commonalities there that we can learn something from? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's striking that, you know, in hearing you talk about this and having thought about it as well, is that the drive and impulse behind it is one of managing conflict, but keeping everyone in their little boxes without ever really having the possibility of transcending it. And there's an element, I think, certainly with the, in the Middle East of looking to the Lebanese case of going, hey, this is, you know, okay, they had a, they had a whole civil war, but okay, things are a little bit more stable and locked in place there and that's the best we can hope for uh well you have where... to yeah you have to manage the conflict because it's it's on un, unresolvable right that it, it's 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 grounded in in kind of um i think that's that's like the explanation it's grounded in cultural differences and historical differences and it's not i mean it's not resolvable in the way that class in interests are resolvable there is at least one way you can uh, you can have a, a different sort of society that doesn't have those those conflicts but i think that's the i would say that's the at least in the british case that's where the idea of managing conflict comes from that you can't you can't transcend it because there's no historical drive to transcend like a culture or a or an, a, an ethnicity or anything like that it's like you, you know these things are given and you you have to you have to respond to them and you have to be pragmatic and and, and have the best kind of form of, but, of um, dealing with it that you can. But is, I mean, isn't the point exactly that it's, you know, uh, it serves elite interests quite well to have society di divided vertically rather than horizontally yeah, so that you definitely. can't have class-based solidarities and that everyone is, uh, you know, you belong to your uh, tribal leader. To, and I, I would say that in kind of scare quotes, obviously. Um, but, you know, every every citizen belongs to their tribal leader who acts as an intermediary, an interface between the citizen and the state. Uh, and therefore, everything keeps kind of uh, locked away and without without any possibility of any real kind of fluidity amongst people and ability to create new masses, basically. Yeah, precisely, right. precisely. Yeah. Sorry, George, go ahead. No, I was just going to say Tony. Tony Blair was a very successful tribal leader in this in this context. Not to not to steal a a, a joke style of, of Carl's, but yeah. Sorry, you were going to say you're going to probably say something a bit more a bit yeah. more useful to that. Uh, yeah, well, you made me self conscious now, but <laughs> uh, uh, I, I'm joking. You didn't. Uh, <laughs> so uh, no, what I was going to say is that's precisely the point: is that does serve elite interest, but also. It then that observation prompts two things: is one, not to accept this as a um, modern form of primordial uh, relationships and social formations. Right? You have to understand it as a form of modern politics. One very important. I'm not going to expand on this now. I'll come back to it. But from a point of view of 
left-wing politics, let's say, you have to do that demystification of this. These are not inherently kind of medieval relationship or feudal relationships yeah. that are reproducing themselves in a uh, in a new, in, in a new form. No, they are new relationship produced precisely for the service of a particular uh, form of state and particular form of capitalism through a certain stage of its evolution within that context. Secondly, the fact that this is replicated in uh, Britain or, or done in a similar form in Britain is no surprise because as I say in the essay, um, the roots of actually these kind of arrangements by which I mean uh, these communitarian, formalized communitarian uh, 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 political and social arrangements come from Britain and France under colonialism, from Britain and India. So they are the ones that start to create quotas for political representation. They are the ones, you know, that all kind of notion of divide and conquer, which might seem a little bit kind of simplistic and cynical. But ultimately, there were drivers behind it that, you know, uh, if we just applied normal voting, everyone might be a Hindu and then we won't have women, we won't have Muslims. Let's orchestrate this. And then maybe that's not a surprise in the case of Britain, but then you look at what France did in, in some of its colonies, where on the one hand in France, it's celebrating um, laicite and, uh, you know, uh, all the all those notions that the French state is built around. But when you go to the colonies, then they come to Lebanon and create something quite different, right? And they create something much more um, uh, communitarian and they create an entire political system that's organized about this, which is distinctly different from what happens in France, right? And there's yeah. no surprise there because the relationship was a relationship between center and periphery uh, under a, a, a colonized kind of um, uh, perception of the world. And then what was seen as good enough for the French wasn't seen as good enough for those backward peripheral colonized subjects. So I think those are really two key important aspects to bear in mind. Yeah, and that point that you make at the end is something that the intellectual critics of universalism sees on as a way to undermine universalism and to point out the hypocrisy there saying, you know, well, the French didn't, the French aren't consistent yeah. implementers of it. And you put it quite well that you say that that is uh, based on a simplified linear model of development of the West, that they've understood uh, Western universalism to have come about almost, almost as a sort of automatic process of capitalist development and economic modernization rather than as the result of actual social struggle. Absolutely, absolutely, which is kind of like a, it's a gotcha, it's like the worst gotcha in the world that a lot of post-colonialists in particular try to trip you up on it as yeah. a kind of universities where they say, oh, look, they were being hypocritical. And I'm like, well, of course, we know that they're being hypocritical because they were colonizers to start with. Yeah. <laughs> That's got nothing to do with, you know, the logic of the Enlightenment or... Did you know they were actually try... racist? Like, yes, yes, yeah, we, that, yeah, that, that yeah. is a major I part mean, of the we're story. quite aware of that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's like the worst gotcha in the world but also it's again this oversimplified model that assumes of, of understanding the west and this is vivek shiber in particular does a beautiful um job of kind of uh, uh dismantling i mean he actually dismantles an, an, an entire school of thought but in particular dismantles this kind of um, a misunderstanding of the way Western society is developed by post-colonialists, where it almost assumes there is no bottom-up 
push. There are no social struggles. There are no workers' rights or women's rights or things like that that have been obtained from below. These have all been handed out by enlightened liberal elites, which is, um, of course, I mean... Yeah, and then obviously they were hypocritical. Yeah, like obviously, (laughs) so if it was handed out by them, they might do it unequally, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You also point in in the essay to to CLR James's point in in Black Jacobins that like yeah the the French were really hypocritical in in their um, kind of instantiation of of some of their own revolutionary ideas and it took it took the precisely the Black Jacobins to show them what these ideas really meant and there's no there's no kind of contradiction in that it's just you can't you can't expect that the historical group of like 18th century French people to get to to get to that to get to that point. Um, French colonizers in particular, yeah, right? Because I mean, yeah. you're looking at a society in which there's all sorts of, uh, you know, there's strong left wing movements, all of that, but and it, it it wasn't them that was going around colonizing the world, and and hence this inability to see. Uh, these complexities within colonizing societies, these kind of social struggles within the West, and it's all kind of leading to this um, um, construction of racialized and, and nationalized identities that ultimately drives towards one thing, that the way you understand Western society and its evolution under capitalism is fundamentally, what post-colonialists argue, is inapplicable in the East, because you know the, the oversimplification that follows is these people are are much more interested in a traditional relationship like kin and religion and things like that and they're inevitably going to follow a different path of development blah, blah you know so on yeah. and so forth not to sound a bit jejekian now and 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 that's the, <laughs> that's the kind of so it's almost like a transference because in their failure to explain this, you know, mystifying uh, failure of, let's say, um, elites in India to kind of uh, transition India to a high form of modernity and things like that, they fall back onto um, uh, uh, archetypes and, and, and a kind of an oversimplification of their own societies and what matters yeah. in those societies. Yeah, and for all that they pretend to speak for those, you know, from below or whatever, to have some sort of plebeian uh, pretensions, that whole analysis bears witness to the failure or rather the absence of a class analysis right from the start, that they look at the West and they don't see they don't see the class tensions that have led to uh, led to these to the kind of universalism and the uh, even the institutionalization of certain universalism in the form of citizenship. So, I mean, it's it's remarkable how that anybody could uh, mistake this for anything that could be vaguely left wing. That said, and I want to move on to talk about specifically the Middle East, because it's obvious, and I think you, you know, you say this in, in in maybe not in so many words, but that the sheen has come off of secularism. Of course, not just in the Middle East, but uh, sticking to the Middle East specifically. Uh, authoritarian modernizing and ostensibly secular regimes in Syria and Egypt in particular seem to have been complicit with that undermining of, um, of secularism. Can you talk us through that? Like what role have they played and, and what do you think maybe popularly across the region that, uh, that I suppose, negative example, what role that negative example has played for people in, in maybe making secularism seem less appealing? 
Yeah, so it, it, it operates on a couple of different levels. One is <clears throat> there is no notion of a, a secularism devoid of a particular political project that gives its meaning and form, right? Yeah. It's, it doesn't exist in, in the abstract. So you might have a, a, a you know, secularism under a, a, a communist project would look different to what it might look like under a liberal project to what it might look like under an authoritarian project which is what you end up with uh, in the aftermath of uh, national liberation movements. And the only way that those elites that were largely drawn from the army across places like Iraq, Syria, Egypt, uh, <clears throat> it kind of evolved into um, this authoritarian form. And it varies in the way it operates from different contexts, but it came a handy way of saying, you know, in Egypt, we've got a significant Christian minority and the state will start to represent itself in varying degrees as a kind of, um, particularly in the, in the last 10 years, as kind of representing something that's uh, quite distinct from the divisive Muslim Brotherhood, let's say, approach right yeah. or tra more traditionally in iraq and syria where talking about secularism um the way the the kind of the state imposed secularism is a way of overcoming this cliche that's always used these are societies that are mosaics of ethnicities ethnicities and sects and in in both instances although in one of them it, secularism was kind of used as a vehicle to mask the control of small uh sect sectarian groups that uh, controlled power, uh, for example, in Iraq and Syria, to mask their kind of sectarian identity, right? So there's a high secularist discourse um, that that kind of says, you know, let's let's kind of not ask people what the, the sect is because it will become quite apparent that this state or that state is controlled by a majority of people from a particular right, sect. Yeah. And, and then it operates differently. Obviously, we always have to be careful about this and not do generalizations. It operates differently. And, and none of them might ever kind of talk about it in a very over-enthusiastic way where we're secularists or whatever. But there's insinuations, there's way in which the state represents itself that kind of uh, seems to be aspiring or uh, aspiring to represent itself as a secular model. Right, now what happens as a result of that then is um, many people who are oppressed or put in jail or whatever because they belong to a particular religion or sect and 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 kind of their issue becomes and again you go back for example to the example of uh, the muslim brotherhood in syria or in egypt then they start to see this state as illegitimate firstly it's illegitimate because it doesn't represent a true form of uh, Islamic governance in their eyes, but also because it's persecuting them for who they are, right? And there's a, a, a kind of a, a, a complex number of developments over decades where that kind of notion of secularism as some sort of panacea for the ills of um, divided societies or fragmented societies or multi-ethnic, multi-sectarian societies starts to lose its sheen because you can see that the only people talking about secularism are the authoritarians, right? Yeah. And that is a failure in particular of left-wing movements to claim the mantle of secularism. Why, and why why did the um, why did they not want that that mantle? Like what's 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 wrong or what's kind of like um I don't know dangerous or, or kind of strategically not very useful about 
specifically advocating secularism i guess there's a question like what 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 do you mean by secularism but like yeah why yeah. why is it that those movements kind of step away from it or or, or yeah, don't feel that, like it's the right thing to do that that's a really good question and particularly among the communists there's um um when you read through the literature, you feel that in, in a lot of the instances, AIA, in my personal opinion, it's an act of political cowardice, right? And they always felt like they had to kind of tiptoe very carefully around the subject of religion, not to kind of undermine um, themselves against. In a lot of the writing, you see that they felt that societies weren't quite ready right mm. and and you know in classic uh, communist terms they're yeah. like you know we have to wait as if you're cooking you have to wait for society to be i mean there's objective that, conditions and all of that, that but was that it a sort of stalinist sorry you, was it a sort of no. stalinist kind of notion of of stages yes, that, which that, is a, that was behind precisely that? precisely and i'm coming next to the next point is the other thing that hurt communist uh, arab parties in particular was their close relationship with the soviet union and then a number of kind of instances in which, for example, you know, Soviet Union supported um, the creation of Israel in 1948. It had a number of other issues before, where you know, in in um, in Stalin's policies, where they, you know, there were there were things that 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 were perceived that they would harm um, um, the image of communist parties if they then. Uh, um, came across as, uh, you know, rabid Jacobinites that are going to destroy churches and mosques and do things like that, right? So in my view, it's primarily political cowardice. And there are several kind of degrees of political cowardice that that um, led to the ultimate uh, defeat of communists in places like Iraq uh, against weaker opponents. But, but that's not what we're talking about today. But political cowardice was central to it. And the other one was this kind of relationship with Stalinist uh, Russia and 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 the fact that they were always perceived as being kind of a little bit out of place, not having enough of a foothold and kind of uh, trying to tiptoe around the subject of religion just to kind of accept, get, uh, get a, a certain level of acceptance, all right? So it's not very kind of high conceptual stuff. It was more tactical, uh, immediate kind of concerns, but you right. never right. then arrived at that point where like a true Jacobite manifestation of um, what, uh, what 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 those communities, communist movements might have uh, um, been like. Yeah. So as a result of that, then we get to the point where the only form of secularism you're experiencing as a citizen in this country is the official secularism that comes from authoritarian states and that is by 2011 is completely discredited yeah yeah and, and not by chance the arab spring uh explodes in precisely those states and not for example in the monarchies generally speaking exactly exactly and that's a, re a really great observation because um again and i think it's a side issue here but the monarchies have managed for for different reasons to kind of sidestep these issues and um, they they didn't have the same kind of polities that presented these in these ways. They've never specifically went about and talked about secularism and things like that. And they also drew their political legitimacy to a certain extent from religion. And so it was a it was an entirely different balance. The problem is primarily the problem of Arab republics or Middle Eastern North African republics. And 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 that is that is where you see these manifestations. 
So that's really interesting. I want to come back to that in just a second, because there's a question, maybe a broader question, which we want to go on to discuss about the end of modernization in, in maybe broader terms than just the question of secularism. But just to kind of round off the, the question of secularism, how what is the debate right now in the Middle East? Because, of course, as you said, secularism always takes a determinate form. It's always tied to a particular political project. It's not just an abstract um, sort of identikit model. And it, there's many kind of different meanings behind it. So just to spell out kind of three possibilities, and if you could tell us what you think is the is the most popular or mo- most commonly held notion of secularism there? Because I mean, there's one which is the, the weakest form, which is, uh, I guess, what you get in the United States, which is that the state is equidistant from different religions. The state doesn't um, favor one religion or one sector over the other, but it recognizes them all. So there's an official state recognition often of religion. Then there's the stricter separation of church and state. And then the third level, which is the the, the strongest form of secularism would be a French style laicite. And which, which also implies a certain idea or a certain telos about the way society is going that the state will play or society will play a role in making itself more secular, which is to say less religious. Um, and what is the debate about secularism in uh, the Middle East now, what is it mainly, or maybe in Lebanon specifically, you know, which, which one does of these does it have in mind? So I was going to precisely answer by saying it varies according to context, because it always has a political use for why you are suggesting it, right? The most obvious example is Lebanon, when you're precisely talking about these vertical divisions and secularism is the means to an end towards uh, trying to erode or undermine these vertical divisions in society, okay? And But you have to see it as in a different context because as a Lebanese citizen, you will have that identity on your uh, national identity card, you'll have that sect, you will get employment, go to a particular university sometimes, vote for a certain MP, all those based on that, right? Yeah. So in that context, it's seen as a way, as an ideal that replaces this uh, divisive political entity and does away with the vertical uh, division of society. You go to Iraq, particularly with the demonstration in the last few years, where because the Lebanese model was kind of replicated there in political representation and in the way the power structures are organized, you start to see kind of a semblance of that emerging as well, where the calls for secularism are demands for uh, uh, kind of doing away with these vertical separations within society. You go to other contexts, it becomes software. It's no longer called al-Almaniya, secularism. It's called the civic state, right? Mm. So you want a state that a little bit, you know, um, it's, it's again, um, it's not kind of built around uh, this, um, in, 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 in uh, uh, maybe the, the role of religion within public life, maybe uh, in a lot of the countries, for example, you'll say, you'll see something that says, the Quran is the first source of legislation in the constitution, is trying to move away from that. So it will always be uh, manifested not in an idealized form, which it shouldn't obviously, but in how it serves a political purpose. And that political purpose isn't always a specific political project, but a yearning for a different form of political arena in which this political project can emerge. 
mm. if that makes sense. So it's seen as a precursor or the, the platform precursor, on which the politics precisely. could be played out. Yeah. No, that's, precisely. That's... The idea, yeah, the idea is if you move beyond that, then people, you know, will, will then uh, kind of reprogram to think more of their interests rather than through these vertical subdivisions of society. Yeah, no, that, that's very interesting. And yeah, the way that it would play out differently in, in different places and Lebanon specifically as a way of getting past the vertical division. Um, the And I guess in other places, it might have certain... Uh, a certain vision about republicanism, maybe perhaps, which uh, which is something which is a term that we haven't used so far. Uh, I'm saying this as a way of getting to to the next point I wanted to discuss, which is uh, the end of modernization, and it's I mean something that I've written about separately, um, and which encompasses a whole range of different phenomena today, which involve include the end of universalism, the end of secularism, maybe even the end of republicanism that we've been discussing here, um, but also maybe also involves the end of, uh, you know, formal work, the end of citizenship, the end of social democracy, et cetera, et cetera, right? So there's all these different things that you could bring together. What I want to discuss and bring forward in this discussion specifically about the Middle East is that it seems that in that context, you have what you've already describing, Carl, about the decrepit nature of authoritarian regimes who wielded secularism uh, for, you know, in kind of hypocritical and authoritarian and oppressive forms. And you have the monarchies, which uh, then weren't shaken by, by the Arab Spring. And then probably you have the only vision of modernity, and it's a thin one, a very thin one, uh, in the region presented by the Gulf states. And so where is, is there a vision of modernization, I guess, in uh, in the Middle East today, and what what are its components? Because all, as I said, all that you have is the specific vision of kind of glass towers and shopping malls and near slave labor uh, in the form of the Gulf states. Yeah, well, it, but it is a vision of modernization because um, you know it's about if you look at all the slogans, oh, these are sold, and you know you just look at the practical results of it. If you're a Lebanese citizen who lives in Lebanon, you can't get medicine. There's no electricity. The roads are all you know you can't drive on them. And then you go to a place like the UAE where you know the electricity is reliable mm. um you know there's public transport the roads are great and um uh, there's development you see development around so i think it's it, it's done through this vehicle of development particular and that development takes a concrete shape excuse the pun like literally a concrete shape through you know buildings and bridges and roads and investment in infrastructure and that was always part of what the promise of modernization is because it represents a solution to your problems in life it represents an aspirational aspect for your life a better way for you to take control of resources of your country find jobs um hospitalization education you need to build schools build universities so that exists in that form now the way the gulf states talk about it is they like to separate which is not unlike you know, European elites in, in, in different stages of capitalism to separate the democratization process from the developmental, developmental 
process yeah. all right so it's like we are different societies so they're culturally relativistic in that sense but they're not doing anything that does, or saying anything that post-colonialists are not saying they're saying because we have a cultural specificity maybe representational democracy in the form that is known in the west is not right for us again it's something that a lot of people seemingly on the left say all the time but we're we've got we've got the the developmental aspect figured right that problem that for a lot of other nations they can't even begin to grapple with we have the infrastructure we have the electricity we have all that kind of thing so that's kind of the tool of legitimization that yeah. is in it's in effect if it wasn't working it would form a political crisis right so, so it's kind of a you know a mixed bag like democracy is not not right but on the other hand like development is 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 suitable and we can uh you know we can put up put up these these buildings and um you know that's so that, that that's what's appropriate at this yeah, point yeah i mean they're very explicit about it and you can see from their point why they would say it and why they would point to successes in it right so when 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 you look at a country that has like the uae that has very fast growing cities that draws you know millions of people from around the world and in the region in particular they are able to point to a material success that other nations cannot actually point to, right? And that kind of forms a fissure in this because you used to think of all of these things on one package, right? That it's a process of democratization and modernization and social development and things like that. Yeah. What they've what they've kind of very cleverly latched on is there's a fissure there, but it's a fissure that there's no one in the world, hardly anyone in the world now today saying doesn't exist. Because as I keep saying, you have people on the left, seemingly on the left today, saying things like, oh, maybe Western democracy, you know, isn't right for Western yeah. style democracy. It's always called that is not right for our societies because we care about different things. And again, to go back to some post-colonialists who will make these points. Right. So all of a sudden you see this kind of seemingly should be like opposing camps agreeing on a very fundamental thing. And this is what I was trying to point to in the essay, that there are very fundamental assumptions about the way we understand these processes. Once you kind of overcome this notion of universalism and things like that, that then you can become much more relativistic about it. You can become much more cherry picking about it and then um these processes of legitimization of power then start to draw on those uh and that's precisely what you see in places like the gulf yeah no i guess that that makes a lot of sense i guess that also would apply i mean that universalism can be used i think and you kind of use it as well as quite a useful battering ram around a whole to kind of capture a whole range of different tensions and conflicts and antagonisms, uh, even in relation to, for example, mass inclusion and kind of at an, in an economic sense, because I think that when we were, I think when we were in London in the pub, we were talking and you were telling me about Saudi Arabia and that actually the, de the degrees of poverty there as well. And so that would be another way in which I guess some vision of modernization of a kind of universal modernization is also not being realized, even in somewhere like Saudi Arabia, which has, you know, growth rates, new cities and so on. Yeah, I mean, it's particularly a problem of unemployment, that, that is correct, and it takes a form of, like any kind of society in, in those things, it takes a form of uneven development, obviously these problems will reproduce themselves over there. Saudi Arabia is um, unique in a sense, though, because it's the largest, and it has a big population, and um, um, 
and and it's it's again having to find itself so in a sense it's kind of the only one of the gulf states that of that scale you know that it, it faces this problem and has historically looked for different ways in solving these problems but ultimately the solution for that is um, um problems of you know and even development and things like that that's a that's a material solution in a way the political vehicles that will deliver it will will differ but that's what you see now uh saudi arabia has this kind of uh, you know the 2030 vision we're gonna build that many houses we're gonna build that many schools so they're actually suggesting a, a kind of a material solution mm. for that right and that's how they're going about it and even within the confines of that that's something that you don't necessarily find in other places in the middle east and here i want to draw your attention to something a very interesting um phenomenon that happens in Lebanon, for example, because the elite seemingly there, the ruling elite will say, you know, we want to build big projects. You know who stops the big projects? It's the activists and, you know, mm. civil society and, and the opposition groups, the young opposition groups, right? They have this aversion to large infrastructure projects. Now, put this in the context of a country that has chronic shortages of electricity, water, all kinds of resources, and they're kind of viscerally opposed to any large infrastructure project to solve that right and that's again another uh, we're talking about people that are largely westly trained western trained or educated or you know trained in lebanon educated in lebanon in westernized institutions and they absorbed all this kind of let's call it the post-material construct right it's yeah. a little bit a lot of environmentalist influences on it uh, uh, a lot of kind of um, small is beautiful, that kind of, you know, that kind of impulse, infrastructure, big infrastructure projects are, are bad socially, are bad, all this kind of uh, logic, right? So when you kind of compare the two entities, it's kind of an inversion of what you haven't imagined historically, because you would have had the left-wing groups, for example, in um, Arab republics, they would have historically said, you know, we need big infra investment infrastructure, we need dams, we need to take control of our own energy, we need to build, we need to develop, and then, then the, the ruling elites weren't able to do that. And, 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 and then you get to an inversion of that in Lebanon now. Now, as it happens, the Lebanese ruling elite is utterly hopeless and they can't build themselves out of a shoebox. But mm -hmm. at least rhetorically, <laughs> right they're saying oh we want to build these big projects which are corrupt which they're gonna get a big cut out of whatever but at least they're kind of claiming that this is the solution and here the opposition comes from a different part right so what does that point to to bring it back to our uh, uh story what we're trying to do is there is a crisis of what modernization means yeah. right so there's an attempt at representing, oh, maybe we just want modernization in social relations or modernization of political forms, right? Yeah, sort and of cultural just... progressivism, for example, or whatever. Precisely. Yeah. But we don't want to like pour too much concrete to do that. And we don't want to build a lot of things. And, you know, we want to preserve our heritage and we want to preserve the environments and all that kind of thing. Right. So you yeah. end up in a very weird and, and you get the opposite and you, and you get the opposite, I guess. I mean, the you know, the kind of rich Gulf states represent the opposite. We'll pour a lot of concrete, but there's no yes, uh, precisely. That's what I'm precisely that's what I'm pointing at. In both contexts, there's a kind of decoupling from how we used to understand modernization. Let's say at the eve of independence, when national liberation movements had achieved independence, the template was much clearer. 
right? There's a path of material progress that's one gonna take us, allow us to take control of our own destiny. And with it, it will bring the means and the precursors to, uh, uh, you know, um, social development, economic development, democratization, liberalization, all these kind of things in different forms, right? It was yeah. a much clearer kind of template. And then now today you see the decoupling between these different trends and the cherry picking that we want this bit of it, we want the infrastructure, we don't want the other stuff, or we just want the other stuff, we want, don't want the infrastructure. And that's at the heart of how we understand modernization itself as a project today. Yeah, I mean, so I, when I've talked about the kind of, not so much about the Middle East and some of these uh, sectarian notions, but the the failure of modernization, the failure of capitalist mo modernization, and indeed maybe even the impossibility of it, we've talked about it in terms of Brazilianization. Is there, uh, is there? I don't even know if I should ask this question, but you know, is there a sort of Lebanonization of the world as well, where there, where you can project onto? I mean, obviously abstracting from the specificities of of Lebanon, but of a kind of growing sectarianism and a, a and a sense of being stuck in a, in a present like that, which is then played out in other countries in the world. I mean, you, you start off by talking and talked about it today here as well about the way that, you know, for example, British multiculturalism as a way of managing diversity itself is some in some sense looks a little bit like uh, Leban Lebanese sectarianism. Yeah, you you have to make a pitch for Lebanon Leban Lebanonization um, to replace Brazilianization as the, the way we talk about the future <laughs> no, but, but also but even this notion of like yes or, we'd like to build things right we'd like to we'd like to have some you know economic modernization uh but we can't our hands are tied i mean is that is that a sort of uh something that you can kind of distill there from the lebanese experience or or, or am i just trying to put words in your mouth no 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 i think there's a there's a there's a very valid uh argument to be there there but I'll explain how I see it. And But first of all, just to say, I, I don't resent the Brazilianization of the word because obviously Brazil belongs to us, the Lebanese, because <laughs> there's so many of them over there, right? So so that's kind of like a, a sub-branch. Uh, <laughs> you're not amused, yeah. Alex. No, and, I'm, I'm, uh... I'm laughing. I'm laughing. I was just on mute. I'm, I'm laughing quite. I'm laughing uh, hard but cynically at that, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so where I well, see I, it, just 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 one one famous Lebanese uh, Brazilian politician is known for the slogan "Hoba mais faz." You know, he steals, but he gets things done, and he was quite explicit about the fact that he stole. But you know, he actually pours concrete; he gets things done. So you know, there you go. That's that's maybe very no, Lebanese. no. But that's actually it's funny enough. That's a, that's an old Lebanese thing as well, right? Like particularly at this moment is in oh, the it's old an days, ancient, used, it's an ancient tribal tradition of, an, of it's Lebanese. It's an ancient yeah. Phoenician saying. It's like basically. <laughs> They, they, the ritual uh, of the concrete pouring. <laughs> no, but it was like with the old generations of politicians, like everybody knew that they were stealing and getting their cut, but they were getting something done, right? And the current ones, they just take the cut. They don't build anything. And, and um, so do, do you know the joke, right? I have to tell a joke. Go, I can't go, be yeah, no, of course, and tell of the joke. So it's basically this uh, this Lebanese politician goes to visit a French politician in France. And he goes, this guy takes him to um, his villa, nice villa, big villa, and um, quite a big garden, nice swimming pool. And um, he says to him, how, how did you get the money? You know, you're a politician, a politician salary. How did you get the money to um, to build this this big villa? And and he points to uh to a highway in the distance. And you see they say, Do you see this highway? And he says, Yes. He's like, it was supposed to be half the size. And so we only built half and I and I took and I took the money, the rest of the money, and built this villa. 
And he's like, oh, okay, that's great. And then, so the next month, the, the French politician goes to visit the Lebanese politician. And then he comes in and it's not a villa. It's an amazing palace. The swimming pool is twice as large as his. The gardens are fantastic. And he says, wow, how did you manage to, to, to build this on a politician's salary? And he says, uh, wait, do, do you see that highway over there? He said, no, I don't see any highway. And he's like, exactly. <laughs> Be good. Be good. So I was going to answer the, the, the question about where, where I see this Lebanonization going. And really, that's part of yeah. what I was driving that in the essay is basically in this formalization of relationships between the state and identity groups, right? And then the, the transition from just a recognition to uh, formal representation and mm. establishing formal rules for engaging these identities and giving them a say. So you end up with groups becoming the the the, the kind of not individuals becoming the forming entities of any polities, which the extreme of that is obviously is Lebanon because you've got the, the sects. And I don't like the term sectarianism, and I'm going to say why, but let's call it sects for now because that's how the system is organized. In that transition, and you see movements that I'm not saying they're going to end up being the same, but you can see the formalization of this relationship, right? And you can see it in things like, for example, where you get a group of people that's being offended and then, and you know, something's got to be done about it, something has to be banned and how the state is more and more stepping in to enable that and how the state is stepping in to enable that both through formal and informal mechanisms. For example, as the police in Britain would come and visit you, pay you a visit and kind of ask you, please not to do that or not to do a certain talk and things like that, right? So it's not quite formalized, but it's acquiring more and more of a formalized nature. So what I'm saying with this, as the old form of politics are dying, and you know, even with the kind of the most hardcore leftist movement, there's this very strong identitarian uh, impulses, those relationships are inevitably are going to be formalized. And these yeah. are becoming are going to become the fissures within the society to the detriment of any kind of, in my mind, real um, left wing movements that are working for very clear material ends or, you know, economic ends or social ends or political ends, whatever it may be. This kind of um, um, dilution of that through the identitarian, identitarian prism is already happening. And that starts to resemble what I call always the, the kind of the, the, uh, the, the logical end of that kind of organizing your society, which is Lebanon, right? Is every group then becomes a political entity and it's an identity group, so which means you can't leave it, you can't join it, you, you can't change your opinion about it. That's how you are born. And then it starts to spin off other kind of movements. And it presents interesting dilemmas, by the way, because you get, for example, Lebanese activists who would be completely against the system and saying, we shouldn't elect people because of their sex and things like that, and we should do away with that political system. And then you go and say, but what about the representation of women in parliament or other groups in parliament? And they say, oh, why don't we start a quota for that? Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. So essentially, zombie what they're asking for is now actually they're legitimizing the system. They're just asking for a place within it that recognizes the group that they want to be, which means now we're starting to see this kind of crossbreeding between the old identities, which are the sects, and then the new identities being, I don't know, being LGBT or being 
a woman or being ethnicities, ethnicities that are not already recognized in Lebanon and things like that, which again, you see then a lot of similarities with what's happening in the West. Now, it's not an inevitable and it's not an exact replication, but we are seeing whole political traditions that are being overhauled. And the alternative is a very fragmentary, divisive, identitarian one. And that is going to constantly push for more recognition and for formal recognition and ultimately for more constitutional recognition, right? Yeah. And, and very formalized ways in which it's integrated into the political system of any country because we're just at the beginning of that and there is no pushback. The only pushback that you get is a right-wing uh, uh authoritarian yeah. identitarian yeah. impulse not a universalist secular project right which is like even you know it's much worse <laughs> and it's Absolutely, also operating yeah. on the same assumptions so it's definitely not the solution but that's the only pushback that you're getting and it's a pushback that only reinforces this right and i'll give you an example how that resolves itself in lebanon and see if it resembles things that you might recognize in the west so the way the lebanese system deals with these kind of irreconcilable differences is you might get something like a billboard for an ad for i don't know um an ikea ad let's say in which um there's a woman in a swimsuit or in her underwear or something and they say okay it's okay to put this ad in a christian area of beirut but when we go to the Muslim area of Peru, we're going to take the, the same ad and make the woman, you know, dress the woman in long robes, right? That's how, and, and it kind of, this is how you kind of accommodate these things, right? And you start to look at the West and you see, you know, now, especially with the, with, you know, we're doing everything digitally, right? And everything can be personalized, but it's personalized not for a person. It's personalized for the consumption of groups yeah. that are produced by this form of, uh, uh, capitalism. Everybody's and, a marketing uh, category, basically. Exactly. I mean, I don't know if you've seen this thing where Amazon now is, you can basically, you've got all these stores in Amazon. And so you can shop at like uh, uh, veteran owned stores, black owned stores, Asian owned stores. So so it's it's like, I mean, the, 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 the amazing cynical nature of it is so blatant and people don't see through it right it's like oh no no of course that's encouraging black owned stores so it's great capitalism is yeah. being so magnanimous and sharing the wealth and, and things like that and 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 those are kind of tendencies that are much more interested in observing and how these kind of two different contexts can tell us something about the way politics is being shaped and societies are being shaped um, and not interdependently, we're all so much more connected now. And, and these are the things that I think we need to be really paying attention to now because all the rules are being rewritten. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and in a world of low growth and little to go around, uh, every social demand can very usefully be funneled into whatever kind of narrow sectionalist or sectarian uh, interest groups um, or, or in interest group based demands. Right. So um so it actually proves a quite quite a useful way to to manage social conflict, which is where we started uh, with with this discussion in the in the first place. Yeah, and that's precisely the point: is not to accept the kind of the mystification of this, right? But to understand that there's a material reality to all of this, and it's about a way of organizing, you know, the 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 hegemony over resources of society and their allocation under, you know, uh, a low growth uh, environment and these kind of things. So it's always important to pay attention to that, because there are always always in these situations there are material interests 
that are masking themselves under those categories and they might not yeah. do it cynically by the way they might not do it cynically because they might really it's an entire it. yeah. Yeah, they might believe it because it's an entirely new paradigm. But clearly, I mean, and you can't even blame them in a way because they're working for their own material self-interest under that very narrow definition, right? It's not one where it seeks to maximize the entire output of a society so that redistribution can become more equitable. It's about you no know, carving a bigger share for yourself. It's that interest in that narrow sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's great stuff. Um, I think we might leave this here. Actually, could have carry on uh, about the the world divided into marketing categories for a bit longer, really. Um, <laughs> that's another episode. That's another episode. <laughs> yeah. All right, Carl. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. And Cheers. Hope the next one is in person. Take care. Thank you.